I've been listening to Tickets to My Downfall by Machine Gun Kelly for months. And I listened to it once yesterday. Welcome to Spin It. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Spin It. I'm James. With me, as you know by now, is my co-host, Connor. Connor, say hello to all your fans out there. That's right, everyone. We're back. Last week, we teased that this episode would be related to the Transformers. That's right. Well, here it is. This week, we're ranking Optimus Prime's debut album titled Autobots. No, no, not that tied to Transformers. No, no. Wait, what? Not that album? If Optimus Prime did release a steampunk album, though, I'd buy it. <laughs> it would absolutely be steampunk, wouldn't it? That, yeah, I hadn't even thought about that. No, not Optimus Prime. This week we're talking about Machine Gun Kelly, the rapper turned pop punk extraordinaire. It's true. And we're talking about his most recent album, Tickets to My Downfall. I've been to all sorts of things in my lifetime, right? Concerts, sporting events, shows, conventions, whatever. Tons of ticketed stuff. I've never been to a downfall. Have you? Uh, I feel like most, uh, never mind. That was going to be really sad. (laughs) It seems like most of my life has been a downfall. (laughs) (laughs) I've been to a waterfall and that feels like the water's going down. It's falling down. Is, Is a waterfall a type of downfall? It is a downfall. Would you go see Machine Gun Kelly's downfall? And how much would you pay for a ticket? Uh, I feel like that's a big part of what the title to the album means, right? Everybody wants a ticket to his downfall. It's actually kind of a philosophical take on fame. Everyone likes to see people rise from the ashes and become famous, but only so far before they want that slope to turn the other direction. You know, you can only get so high up the mountain before people start rooting against you instead of for you. Yeah. I think that's what he is talking about here with this album title. He thinks he's reached that point. Yeah, definitely. And that's a little taste of what's coming on this podcast. If you enjoyed that, stick around because there's only more of it to follow. Yeah, I didn't really go with your bit there, did I? No, no, you kind of blew it out of the waterfall, but that's okay. How familiar are you with Machine Gun Kelly outside of what we've just done? Not at all. I couldn't tell you if I've heard a single MGK song. I know who he is. I know he's also like a actor. He's gotten into film. Yeah. He's been in some movies that I've heard of. Yes, he has. Actually, I was kind of surprised that I'd heard of these movies too. I haven't seen any of them, but I've heard of them. That's the more important part. Well, Machine Gun Kelly's real name is Colson Baker, and he was born in Texas, but he went to high school in northern Ohio after he had a childhood kind of on the move. Which is awesome. Ohio represent. (laughs) Yeah. He actually owns a coffee shop up in Cleveland called the 27 Club. Wait, really? Yeah. It's named after the weirdly high number of musicians who have all died at the age of 27. Have you heard of the 27 Club? No. Worth a Google. Kurt Cobain is actually a famous member of the 27 Club, along with Janis Joplin and a bunch of other musicians that preceded him in death oh i'll have to look that up we should go there i've been there you've been there i'll go there again well i've never been there let's go next time you're here let's do it yeah the 27 club it's a it's a morbid name but it's a much more hip casual aesthetic like when my sister told me oh let's go to machine gun kelly's coffee shop i kind of thought it would just be like dark because he was a rapper before he was pop punk and so i thought this place would just be crazy (laughs) but i walked in and it was like all pink and nice they serve pink lattes it's crazy that's absolutely what i would expect but I guess I didn't really know him as a rapper. Yeah. This is my only knowledge of him. (laughs) Well, my first experience with him was live in concert. I didn't know any Machine Gun Kelly. Really? Yeah. He opened for Fall Out Boy in 2018, and I went to go see them, and he was the opener. And boy, he put on a show, I'll tell you that much. Hmm. And that was right at the height of his feud with Eminem. Oh, yes. So he came out and was like, oh, everybody in the audience, put your middle fingers up. And like, it was something to see. But I was mostly there for the people that came after him. (laughs) Well, Machine Gun Kelly started making music in 2007. He released four mixtapes before signing with Bad Boy Records in 2010. Mixtapes? Yeah. I hear someone in the background. You can hear him in the background, yeah. He's itching to go. (laughs) There was a disturbance in the force. (laughs) There was a skip in the (laughs) mixtape. Since he's released his four mixtapes, he's put out five albums and an EP, mostly rap or rap rock, like we said. But Tickets to My Downfall is his most recent, and it was released in September of 2020. If you're listening to this episode on the day that it comes out, we're actually only 15 days away from its first birthday. So happy early birthday, Tickets to My Downfall. You made it one year around the sun. We should get it a cake. We should. 
let's have a birthday party for tickets to my downfall. <laughs> we need to buy a copy of the album, put a little party hat on it, and put it in front of a cake with candles lit. And then we could sell tickets to the birthday party and have tickets to tickets to my downfall. Oh. But then if that gets super popular, you can sell tickets to the downfall of the ticket to my downfall. Oh, when the party starts to die? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. As the party's winding down, we'll sell tickets to the downfall of tickets to my downfall party. Exactly. exactly. What a mess. In August 2021, just last month, he announced his sixth album called Born With Horns, which people are kind of expecting to be similar in style to tickets to my downfall. It's either good or bad, depending on if you like the tickets to my downfall. That's right. If you listen to this album and this episode and you love it and you want more, good news, more is on the way. If you listen to this album and you hated it and you want him to go back to rap, tough. So he's been making music for 14 years, and in that short amount of time, he's already got some awards. He won the Billboard Music Award for Top Rock Artist in 2020. He's got an MTV Music Video Award, the best alternative video for Bloody Valentine that's on this record. Nice. And let me tell you, he's cleaned up at the Ohio Hip Hop Awards. He's won 12 in the past decade. And I know you know, there's some real stiff competition in the Ohio Hip Hop Awards. Uh, so listen, I feel like I get snubbed every year. <laughs> yeah? When was <laughs> you submitted to the Ohio Hip Hop Awards? Every year. You know me. I'm known for my hippin' and hoppin'. <laughs> yeah, you are, really. A local legend of sorts, I think. Uh, yep. But at least you're getting snubbed <laughs> to Machine Gun Kelly. Yeah, well, you know, I don't have a coffee shop. That's the issue. Yet. Believe it or not, Machine Gun Kelly even has a 2017 Radio Disney Music Award. Radio Disney? Yeah, for his duet with Camila Cabello on the song Bad Things. I don't know who that is. You might one of these days. I'm sure we'll cover her eventually. <laughs> Disney radio. I get snubbed from that too. My hippin' and hoppin' just isn't appreciated anywhere. No, you'd think it would be. There's a there's a certain record ranking podcast that I'm hoping will cover my hippin' and hoppin' album at some point. Is it Spin It? Is it us? Yeah. <laughs> well, fill out the form on the website and then you can recommend that album for us. You don't get co-host privilege. You have to go through the same <laughs> executive channels as everyone else. Yeah, yeah. I, I understand. It's only fair. Well, like we teased last week, and like you kind of mentioned at the beginning, Machine Gun Kelly does have pretty personal ties to the Transformers franchise. <laughs> he is the longish time boyfriend of Megan Fox. Indeed. Star of the very first movie from way back in the day. Wasn't Shia LaBeouf technically the star? She was like the female co-lead. But the movie followed Shia LaBeouf. The movie followed Shia LaBeouf, but anybody that went to go see the first Transformers movie knows that Megan Fox was the star of the movie. Well, first off, Bumblebee was the star of the movie, all right? That car's great. Megan Fox was the human star of the movie. All right, there we go. I'll allow it. I'll allow it. <laughs> Although, if Machine Gun Kelly was dating Bumblebee, he would be a million times cooler. <laughs> that should satisfy our teaser. If you were curious, be curious no more. That's what it was. Let us know in the comments if you got it right, if you knew who we were talking about last week. Yeah, let us know. If you were just here to get that teaser satisfied and you want to leave, or if you want to leave and listen to the album and then come back, this is the point in the episode that you could do so. So, tickets to my downfall. Let's talk about the album. It came out in 2020. It's very pop punk in genre. And like we said, it's Machine Gun Kelly's fifth and most recent album. Album. It actually debuted at number one on the Billboard 200. It sold or streamed 126,000 album equivalent units in its first week. It's a lot of units. I know it is. Heck of a lot. It was triple his numbers from his 2019 release, Hotel Diablo. So it represents a huge growth for him, too. And it was the first rock album to top the chart in over a year. The last one to do it was Tool in 2019. On this record, Machine Gun Kelly worked extensively with Blink-182 drummer Travis Barker. Colson Baker, Travis Barker. Not confusing at all. Baker Barker. Wait. I'm waiting. That, I'm just blown away right now. I don't know. I don't know what to say other than wait. Uh, this is going to come up when we get into the actual analysis. I have in my notes that I felt like a lot of his music should have been a Blink-182 song. Yeah. <laughs> like, I have that in my notes specifically. <laughs> the reason for that is because Blink-182, I mean, they, their fingerprints are all over this. He drummed and produced on a lot of the record. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense for some of the critiques I'm going to have later on. Very Blink-182 inspired. But that's pretty much all the preliminary stuff about the album for this week. And now it's time to roll into everyone's favorite segment. I mean, unquestionably favorite segment. Get that mixtaper out of the background. Bring him up front. Let him host Fact or Spin one more week. Hey, I'm here, I'm here. I'm ready to go. I heard we talk about mixtapes. <laughs> that was different than usual. Yeah, we did talk about mixtapes for a minute. 
I'm just really excited to be here. Hey. We're really excited to have you once more. Are we ready to get into the first fact? I'm ready to get into the first fact. Are you ready to get into the first fact? Yeah, I really like my facts this week. They all kind of uh, follow a similar theme. We'll see if you can find it. Ooh, thematic facts. My first fact, MGK has a drop of Megan Fox's blood. What did he like ask her for it? No. Oh, she just gave it? She just voluntarily gave her? It was her idea. Why? Uh, as a Valentine's Day gift. Much like buying 10 unopenable European Burger Kings. <laughs> I don't think that's as romantic as she thinks it is. I don't know. It depends on the setup, right? What was the setup? She was getting ready to leave to go shoot a movie in Bulgaria. Sure. Transformers 2. <laughs> that got me. <laughs> you know, it was early in the relationship when this was happening, and he was feeling pretty insecure about her leaving for so long and going so far away. And so she gave him a necklace that has a drop of her blood set in it as a gift. Because, you know, couples will give each other mementos, like handkerchiefs or whatever, when they go long distances or whatever. Uh-huh. So she wanted to take it a step farther to show that she's claimed that they are, like, two sides of the same soul. And so she wanted to do more than just a handkerchief, so gave him a necklace with a drop of her blood and he keeps it with him pretty much at all times that is so weird so he still has it still wears it to this day i don't think he's always wearing it but he usually has it on his person okay well i think the smartest way to have a necklace on your person almost always is to just wear it but okay well in the interview i supposedly saw he pulled it out of his pocket weird this is so strange this isn't even a weird fact about machine gun kelly it's a weird fact about megan fox Weird, but is it true? <laughs> How much blood is in a drop? I mean, are we talking just a finger prick or like, I don't know, a little vial? The necklace looked like it was almost a small little circular Petri disc, but the size of like a half dollar. Oh, and it was like full? Uh, no, no, just a drop in there. It's just a drop like set. Oh, like in resin. What is Megan Fox's blood type? Red. Yes, it is. I'm sure it is. All right, so let's lock in an answer here spin i think this is a spin what the heck you think this is a spin yeah what is this and i mean they talk a lot on the banyan tree interlude later about they got the matching tattoos and stuff and that's cute wouldn't they have like mentioned a blood necklace or something i don't know they do seem to be a close couple but i'm still locking in spin because this feels derivative of lil nas x's devil shoes with blood in them so i'm just gonna say spin you're going with spin then officially well this fact is true Ah, picture in the chat i can't believe where do you find these things (laughs) (laughs) it was a very deep dive to find but once i found it there was articles all over the place once you know how to look for it that's absurd he really does wear a necklace made of megan fox's blood i kind of wonder if part of the reason she went with the drop of blood is because one of his bigger hit singles off this album is bloody valentine of which she stars in the music video and so she gave him for valentine's day some of her blood it's very possible you know sometimes i feel bad when i miss a fact or a spin and i get it wrong i feel no guilt over that one you ready to move on to fact number two yeah, I'm I'm ready for your next fact. Remember, there's a common theme going through these. See if you can find it. I'll give it a shot. So far, blood seems to be pretty high on the list. <laughs> Bernie Sanders saved MGK and Megan Fox's relationship. Okay, so in my head, all I'm picturing is that meme of Bernie Sanders running around the corner really quickly. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like Machine Gun Kelly's like, Bernie, I need help. And he's like, on my way. <laughs> What did Grandpa Bernie Sanders do that saved Machine Gun Kelly's relationship? I am once again asking for you to save my relationship. Sorry, I'm stuck on all the Bernie Sanders memes. Oh, gosh. Uh, He got him a passport. Okay, got him a passport. Where was he trying to go? Bulgaria. Oh, you, to see Megan Fox while she was making that movie. Correct. Yeah, he didn't have his passport at the time that she left. That's why he was so bummed because he couldn't go with her. And Bernie Sanders helped get him his passport so he could go see her. How did Bernie Sanders have any kind of influence on the passport? He's a Vermont guy, right? And Machine Gun Kelly is from mostly Ohio. I don't know. He thanked him publicly, thanked him and his team publicly, but never elaborated on why or how they helped. Oh, you don't even know how he helped? Just that he was instrumental in doing it? Nope. I think I'm going to lock this one in as true. You're going with true on this one. Yeah. So he both has a blood necklace and knows Bernie Sanders well enough to get a passport somehow. It doesn't seem like you need to know someone very well to get a passport. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. But I've just got the meme stuck in my head and I can't help but picture like Bernie would do that for Machine Gun Kelly. <laughs> 
Going with fact. Well, I am once again telling you a true fact. Hey! All right. Yep, too true. I'm equally excited when I miss it if I've missed it and it's a true fact because now I've learned some really strange <laughs> thing. Yeah, the worst is when I get you with a lie, right? Because then you're like, you're gullible. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, because I get nothing out of that. Yeah. Ready for the next one? I'm ready for the next one. Bring it on. Again, common theme. See if you can find it. Megan and MGK got caught breaking and entering on their first date. Okay. I think the common theme is that all these facts are about Machine Gun Kelly. You got it. Nailed it. <laughs> Where did they break and enter? A three-story building. Full of? It was closed, boarded up. Oh, just empty? Yeah. Do you know what used to be in it? No. Why were they in there? He used to lay on the roof of the building as a young lad. As a wee lad. <laughs> Machine Gun Kelly was... <laughs> How long were they in there before they got arrested? Did they, like, make it to the roof? They never went in. Oh, so they just got arrested for breaking, not entering. Well, uh, I mean, they entered the roof. Sorry, what? <laughs> <laughs> they made it to the roof. They entered onto the roof. Did they scale the side of it? What do you, how? Oh, yeah. Okay, so my next question was going to be, how did the police know they were there? But I think that's been answered. <laughs> if they just, like, scaled the side of the building. Was there no fire escape? Uh, that's what they used. They, yes, they used, like, the okay. fire escapes up the side. Okay, that does make a little more sense. Did they get charged with anything? Do they have to pay a fine or go to jail or something? Nope. When they were climbing back down, when they got to the bottom, an officer was standing there waiting on them. How long do you think he was down there? <laughs> I don't know. I like to think the entire time. Man, these kids are never getting down. <laughs> like he saw him go up and he just stood there waiting. <laughs> like, hey, chief, some kids are up on the roof of this building. What do I do? He says, just wait for him. Stand there. Wait. <laughs> Yeah, so you know, he asked them what they were doing and let them off with a warning saying not to do it again. Kelly actually gave Megan props for climbing the fire escape in high heels. Oh. And the last little bit of information I have for you is that the reason he wanted her to go up there with him was because he wanted her to come see my world for a minute. That's like Aladdin. Aw. First date. She really... You did say first date, didn't you? Yeah. Real trusting of a first date. Hey, you see this building? Let's climb the fire escape and get on the roof of it. I'm going to say that this one is a spin. You're going with spin on this one. I'm going with spin on this one. Yeah, any reason why? Yeah, I mean, I have reasons in my head. I don't know if I can articulate them. I'm locking in spin on this one, especially since the first two were facts. I, I don't know. All right. Well, this fact is indeed spun. I debated hey. making it true. The only part of it that is spun is the getting caught by the officer part. Oh. Everything else is true. They did climb the roof on the first date. All all that's true. The only thing that didn't happen was the stuff with the cop. I made that part up. So what you're saying is literally everything I had reservations about was real and true. And then the only thing I didn't mention was the false part. Correct. But it doesn't really matter because you got it right. At the end of the day, that's all that matters. Two for three so far. You got another one coming my way? I got I got one more for you. Excellent. Machine Gun Kelly has weed ghosts and tried to shoot another ghost. Has <laughs> what? Has You heard me. Machine Gun Kelly has weed ghosts and tried to shoot another ghost. Has weed ghosts? Yep. Marijuana ghosts. Correct. And tried to shoot another ghost. Okay, what on earth is a weed ghost? <laughs> Ah, good question. To answer that question, I must first give you one other little bit of information. First, Machine Gun Kelly claims that his kitchen is haunted and that anyone who has ever come to his house past 7 p.m. agrees with him. Oh, 7 p.m. <laughs> he decided that they must be wheat ghosts because they're always making ghost snacks and messing with the pantry and fridge. They've always got the munchies. <laughs> Machine Gun Kelly says he has weed ghosts because they rustle around <laughs> in his kitchen for Funyuns. Yep. <laughs> at, at 7 p.m. every single night. Well, uh, just past 7 p.m. Yeah, sure. Yeah. You know, don't always get the munchies at, the, at exactly 7 p.m. Okay, so you say everyone that's been in his house has corroborated this. Do you have any names? He says that. Yeah, but do you have any names? Like, who specifically? I'm guessing Megan Fox is in on it. Uh, Megan Fox <laughs> is the only one I would know, but yeah. Does he just live in an old house? <laughs> like, what's the deal? I don't know. <laughs> uh, you may be wondering where the theme is. Oh, you're right. This one doesn't involve Megan much at all. What's the deal? Ah, but the second half does. They tried to shoot another ghost. <laughs> okay, I was about to start asking questions about that. He got a call from Megan one night after she moved into her new place. She had locked herself in the bathroom because her front doors kept slamming open and shut. 
Ah, okay. And it was the ghost that was slamming the doors then. Well, Kelly, being the brave and caring boyfriend that he is, rushed over there with a gun and searched the whole house before letting her come out, make sure no intruders had come in. Seeing none, they decided it must be ghosts. Okay, so to say he almost shot a ghost is misleading. He almost shot an intruder. No, no, we're getting there. Oh, uh, yeah? (laughs) Since then, he'll be oversleeping uh, at her place, and their bedroom door will slam open and shut. And one night he jumped out of the bed and pulled out his gun and was ready to start shooting. Yeah. He jumped out of bed and was ready to shoot them if they ever showed their ghost face. Showed their ghost faces. This is the fact that's going to either determine whether I go three for four or 50-50 again. (laughs) And there's so much to it. There's two instances of ghosts in Machine Gun Kelly's personal life. And they both seem so ridiculous. This is the dumbest. But are they real? Are they true? If if this is not a fact, I'll kick myself, but I'm going to say that this is a fact. You're going with a fact. Yes, I'm going with fact on this most ridiculous thing. This fact is true. It's oh, a true yay. fact. You win three, three for, for four. 75%. <laughs> I was worried. I almost was like, I should have pulled out a lifeline and called Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Had him help me out, but I didn't need him. Three for four. There are just so many ridiculous stories involving Megan Fox and Machine Gun Kelly that I had to go with the three of them and then just throw in a fourth one for thematic reasons. Yeah, and even the fourth one you threw in was mostly true. Crazy. And all this happened in the last year. I did not know all that, but I did expect some really crazy truths about Machine Gun Kelly to be out there. Yeah. Dude, I don't want tickets to Machine Gun Kelly's downfall. I want tickets to his whole life after that. I want tickets to his kitchen. I want to see these <laughs> yeah, weed ghosts. That's the, that's the next album, Tickets to My Kitchen. Tickets to My Kitchen. <laughs> Wait till you see what he's got cooking on the next record. This was a notably good round of factor spin. So, Mixtaper, my hat's off to you. I'm glad you liked it. You got three out of the four. So, I should be disappointed, but the facts were just so darn good. It's true. And with that, I'm out of here to go come up with next week's Lies and Truth. Yeah. You got it. Go mix some tapes, bud. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And everybody give a warm welcome back to Connor, who's been quietly and patiently sitting and waiting for this to be over. Kiss, kiss. I'm back. Oh, not yet. That that comes in just a minute. <laughs> but before we get to kiss, kiss, we should talk about the album art, as we often do. What do you think of it? I don't know. It's different. The album art is Machine Gun Kelly standing on what looks like the ledge between a hot tub and a pool, but the pool's totally empty. And he's got this very pink guitar. I kind of like the guitar, to be honest. Which makes sense with the pink coffee. You're... Yeah. Pink seems to be his new aesthetic, or at least a key component of it. He definitely looks like a pop punk guy here. He, he's definitely got that angsty rock look you know what i mean he looks he looks like a punk yeah he looks like a punk who's popped we talked about waterfalls and stuff if you're down falling if you're diving maybe he feels like he's diving headfirst into an empty pool yeah this doesn't necessarily depict that but it implies that a little i guess if the argument is that he's causing his own downfall and people are buying tickets to see that then sure yeah it's possible yeah i just kind of like the vibe that they present they're not really super symbolic or i guess meaningful much but it definitely teased this album up in a fitting way i agree so let's talk about the title track i know you often have comments about title tracks but this title track in a certain sense is not a title track because it's called title track it's called title track and it says the title of the album so i think it counts it still does count yeah you're right he says i saw friends in the front row they'll leave when i'm finished you know he he talks all about the tickets to his downfall sold out in minutes there's obviously a high demand to see him plummet yeah it's it's true because like everybody likes an underdog right everybody loves to root for the underdog but you know eventually if you root for the underdog enough and he continues to be successful at some point he stops being the underdog right yeah he's the overdog then yeah, he's the overdog, similar to Updog. You're not going to bait me into that on this podcast. Come on. No, Come on. That's for someone else in the audience to do. <laughs> for, the, for the listeners. <laughs> um, I do have one critique about the lyrics of the first verse. Sure, what you got? The line... Because the ones that gas you up only come around when the flame's on. Yeah. That sounds like a really like good diss towards the fake friends, but I feel like it's kind of backwards, right? It felt backwards to me. There's plenty of accidental propane explosions and gas leaks and things that happen all the time without flames. And that's the big issue with them is that you don't know it's there until the flame comes on and then it goes boom. The flame doesn't come around until the gas is there, not the gas not coming around. 
Yeah, I am not really... There's an ambiguity to this line that I'm not quite sure about because the ones who gas you up could be the ones who pour gas on you, the ones who want to set you on fire and are trying to fuel your explosion. But, like, the ones who gas you up could be the ones that get you gassed and ready to go, like all the people cheering you on. That's what I felt like he was going for, especially when it's following the lines about the friends in the front row leaving when he's done. Yeah. I feel like that's him saying the people who hype you up and are like, oh, yeah, you're awesome. Ooh, yeah, are also the same ones that are then once, you know, your limelight is gone are going to abandon you. Yeah, that's I felt the same way. But then after that, he yells out, F it, and then everything kicks up a level. And the real pop punk energy starts to creep out, and it really doesn't let up from this point on until pretty much the end of the album. Yeah. He sings this bit where he says, I use a razor to take off the edge. Now, that's not actually a line about drugs or self-harm. It just looks like that on the surface. He's actually been very critical of people who can't see past the surface level on that lyric. What this line is actually supposed to be referring to is that he uses a straight razor to shave because it takes longer and it gives him extra time to think or like meditate because I don't think he's very good at that otherwise. I see. Yeah, it's an interesting line in that regard, because how are any of us supposed to know that? Yeah, it definitely sends a very mixed message from what he was going for. It does, but he actually tweeted about it. He said that all the journalists that were trying to analyze the album weren't digging deep enough into it. He said, and I quote, It's poetry, not drunken buffoonery. So... Listen, I consider myself a bit of an expert on buffoonery, and I think I agree with him. You agree with him. Poetry, not buffoonery. The expert has weighed in. Well, we'll have to consult our resident expert buffoon <laughs> at several other times in this album. I've got I've got starred where we'll have to come back to that. Oh, no. I don't like that I just got dubbed the resident buffoon, but I kind of did it to myself. You did. <laughs> there's a thing he does throughout a lot of the album, and it's from a production standpoint. But there's like some sort of processing or uh -huh. tuning that's been done to his voice that puts this like weird I don't want to call it echoey it doesn't sound like someone naturally singing right it sounds like it's been processed in some way right I'm glad you've picked up on that because that did eventually I, there are a few spots specifically where it stands out his voice is definitely being auto-tuned modulated a little bit just to make it hit all those notes cleanly not even just from a clean standpoint, it's just like, it just seems like a thematic thing that he's done across, because he doesn't always do it. Sometimes there'll be whole sections of songs or even whole songs where he sings it without all the processing on it, and it sounds fine like he can actually sing. I don't know. I didn't care for, for it. I preferred when I could actually hear his voice. Yeah, I think for the most part, Machine Gun Kelly has an excellent pop punk voice, to be honest. For someone who started out rapping, I think this is really a strong genre for him. He does have a good singing voice when you don't cover it up with a bunch of buffoonery <laughs> all right well i'm sure we'll come back to that but he sings this one line chorus i'm selling tickets to my downfall and it's that same thing like we talked about if i'm going down i might as well profit from it this album does feel very personal to him even if it's mostly personal in a sense like half of it is backhanded at people that are critical of him but half of it is also very meaningful to him if that makes sense mm-hmm but I think that's pretty much the bulk of what's happening on Tickets to My Downfall. A lot of these songs on this record are super short, almost bite-sized. But track two is Kiss Kiss. Now, let me begin by asking Mr. I Hate Repetitive Songs, what, what did you think of Kiss Kiss? Man, I'm, and let's be clear here. I'm okay with some repetitiveness. You know, if you want to say a line a, sure. twice or three times for a fact, whatever, it's... I only really start to have a problem when it's a majority of the song is just being repeated over and over, you know, like when there's not enough standout originality to the song. So the idea of him repeating kiss, 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 kiss didn't bother me. What really got me was I just didn't like the chorus as a whole. Like the song started off so promising and then he hits the chorus and he starts doing the kiss, 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 kiss the bottle all night. I just did not <laughs> care for that. Yeah. I went to the trouble of looking this up and, and kind of counting. Each chorus should have 12 kisses in it, right? Kiss, 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 the bottle all night, that's four. And he says that three times per chorus. Okay. He does five different choruses. <laughs> so in theory, there are 60, 60 kisses in this song. Oh, gosh. 60 kisses. A lot of kisses. Yeah, a lot of kissing in this song. But after we end title track with all this talk of drugs and such leading to his downfall, track two is all about using drinking to escape reality. So it's, I guess, kind of an illustration of the behavior that is leading to his downfall. Yeah. I don't think there's really much to be said about the lyrics to the point of, you know, 60 kisses. Each verse pretty much just says, 
hey, yup, let's go drinking, doesn't matter where or when, the verses are just fluff, and really the reason the song exists is for the Kiss Kiss Chorus. I think the Kiss Kiss Chorus is actually good. I know you said you didn't like it, but it gets stuck in your head. Mm. So to me, it was really one of the more memorable tracks on the album, even if it's not some great gem of songwriting. You know, it's no... stuck in your head i only think because you have that instrumentation going on behind it that's catchy and the fact that the only lyric you have to remember is the word kissed for the most part you could get by with just kiss yeah uh, that's what i do just i did get stuck in my head on my drive home and yeah i'm just like kiss 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 i just i just like saying kid i couldn't remember any of the words but kiss but i could remember the instrumentation going on behind it because that part was catchy but no i did not care for the actual chorus itself that's fair all right so so let's consult again. Remember the tweet: poetry, not drunken buffoonery. Let's let's analyze the line real quick. Kiss, 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 kiss the bottle all night. Kiss, 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 kiss the bottle. Yeah, resident buffoon. Is this poetry or is this buffoonery? This one gets the stamp of buffoonery. The stamp of buffoonery. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, this one gets the stamp of buffoonery. Fair enough. Okay. Well, how do you think you would look? Maybe after you've been kissing, kissing the bottle all night, huh? You think you'd have a sober face? (laughs) (laughs) Or do you think you'd have a drunk face? It took me halfway through that up until you said you think you'd have a sober face to realize you were trying to transition to the next song. (laughs) Drunk face. This is a rare exception to my comment about the processing of his voice. Yeah. On the chorus, I don't like it on the verses still but on the chorus it would have made a cool stylistic thing to put kind of like that echoey reverb on him singing that chorus yeah i think it works pretty well on drunk face yeah drunk face is a song about staying young another pretty common theme for pop punk music and he starts right off with the chorus i'm still young wasting my youth i'll grow up next summer hey i need you to do me a favor real fast before we get too far into this what could that be i need you to name me a couple of words that rhyme with summer other than number Okay, you're very uh, (laughs) particular about rhymes. I like rhymes. I'm a rhyme guy, all right? I'm a rhyme guy. Fair. And I don't mind the summer number rhyme. That's fine. But he rhymes summer with number twice in the same chorus and then uses that same chorus like five times. Yeah, yeah. Like you couldn't come up with a better... But it's a cool parallel, isn't it? Uh I like the parallel. He he says the first part of the chorus goes, I'm back on those drugs I quit. I kept my dealer's number. And then the second half is, I'm back on that girl I quit. I should have lost her number. I understand that it's repetitive. If that's the cool parallel you want to do, switch up summer and summer then. Go with something other than summer. I don't know. You you got a point. You could change the summer around. I I just didn't care that he went with the summer number rhyme back to back. To back to back. Yeah, nothing in between the two of them. It just rolled right from one to the next. I don't know. I think he really illustrates his own immaturity in that pair of phrases by expressing that he knows it's probably a bad idea, but he gets caught up in life and is just going to do it anyway. Yeah. It's a failure to mature. One line that I did like, though, is in verse two. He says, eyes that have seen too much, I'd go blind for her touch. Yeah, it's a good one. It is a good one. That one gets a certified poetry from me. No, you don't. You don't certify the poetry. Okay. That's pretty much the song. I like the chorus a lot. I think one takeaway I had for this entire album is he's really good at efficient choruses because most of them have very few lines and pretty simple lyrics, but they are so hooky. You know, they're earworm choruses, which is a shame because it makes the rest of the song feel not as good. You know what I mean? Like the verses lag behind because of how much the chorus sticks out in your brain. That's interesting. I've almost the opposite on a bunch of these songs where I find myself listening to the verses because that's where he He's kind of actually telling his story. And I feel like a lot of his choruses are just him spitting out nonsense, you know, just over and over. Poetry. Kiss, 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 kiss. Yeah, you know, the buffoonery is in the chorus and the poetry is in the verses for me. Yeah. It's almost like a head in the heart situation where we're agreeing, but we have different interpretations of what we heard. <laughs> right. A little bit. Yeah. We, we both agree the choruses are simple and the verses are more detailed, but we disagree in our experience of how we experience those verses and choruses. Yeah. You're right. That is weird, isn't it? I do like the way that all these songs have kind of loosely flowed together so far, too. It does loosen up later in the album. 
But the first couple here really flow nicely. Yeah. Well, we start off with the song about his downfall and talking about how he's spiraling into the drinking song, which is, again, about blocking out your problems with alcohol, into Drunk Face, which is the song about an immature relationship, into Bloody Valentine, where he talks about his desire to have a better relationship. There's a couple exceptions that we'll get to, but a good chunk of them actually flow fairly well, at least in my opinion. Thematically, yeah, they do. This is the one where the amount of autotune really started to get to me once or twice in here it just got a little too much of a pull from the autotune and it's not my favorite again though i liked it at the beginning like on that beginning part well in the first verse he sings like handprints in wet cement she touched me it's permanent and i don't know i guess i appreciate the effort but i don't really like that line really something about it is just uh yeah I liked it. I thought that was certified poetry. It's an appropriate image, I guess. I just don't like the way he says it or something. I don't know. Like, I can't... He does like... He pulls a Yoda. Oh, yeah? You think? He, he says this all backwards? Yeah, he says it backwards. Instead of, you know, she touched me like handprints in wet cement, he says the like handprints in wet cement part first. It's kind of backwards. The chorus goes, I don't do fake love, but I'll take some from you tonight. I know I've got to go, but I just might miss the flight. I can't stay for let's play pretend and treat this night like it'll happen again uh-huh. you'll be my bloody valentine tonight that's one of his better choruses i think uh-huh i agree take away the reverb and it would have been the best chorus and the rather than just sounding like someone speaking and you're listening to it digitally it, it just sounds digital i don't know if that makes sense it does a little bit that actually probably clarifies it for a lot of people yeah If you're going back through this song and you're listening for it, you can hear it especially on a lot of the vowel sounds that he does. Listen for it at the end of Tonight, where his voice moves. You can hear it in that place where he changes pitch. You'll hear it pull a little bit. So it's not my favorite in this song, but it is there. And then he sings, In my head, I'm ready to die holding your hand. I like that line a lot too. Yeah. I know there's nothing really complex about it, but I don't think there's anything complex about that emotion either. He does this thing a lot where he'll like, and again, we're going to talk about it in approximately one song. He is his own backup singer. (laughs) He does. There are a lot of call and response type vocals on here. In the background, a lot of yeah, yeahs and a lot of. Yeah, but he's calling and responding to to himself. (laughs) That's right. Yes, it's different they'll make him sound slightly different so you can tell that like they're going for a call and response thing yeah but it's clearly still him it is a weird choice to be your own backup singer yeah i do think call and response is a very pop punk thing sure that matches the mood but it definitely is executed interestingly here with him doing it all himself Well, he doesn't do the whole album by himself, though. No, no. Track five is actually the first track that features another artist. He sings Forget Me Too with Halsey. First song in Connor's patented top three. Ooh, we've got the first one. Track five. You really held off on that one for a while. I was pretty sure something like Bloody Valentine would be in it, but guess not. And it's partially because this song identified for me what I was really struggling with 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 the digital sound. Interesting. Well, Forget Me Too is a song all about a new start and forgetting old relationships. This song really has some vitriol behind it. Like, there's a real edge to the way that he sings, and the distortion on the guitar is really great. I just like it a lot. This is the song that kept getting stuck in my head. The chorus, You Want Me to Forget You, Okay, Forget Me Too. That specific hit, Okay, Forget Me Too, gets stuck in my head. Yeah, it does. And so then I end up with the whole chorus stuck in my head. But what I determined was the digital sound that they've done to his voice is the same kind of thing that they do with punk rocky bands like Blink-182, where you take all the people who are singing on and you kind of blend their voices into one digital voice. Uh huh. That's what they've done to him, but he's the only one singing. There's nothing to blend. It's just <laughs> him. <laughs> it's Machine Gun Kelly's all the way down. So when then we hit the chorus of this song where... Halsey and him are singing together and he's got that blend on it. It sounds great. Yeah. I love it. One of the best hits in the whole album. Yes. And it's like, it it all comes together, but take it away when he doesn't have people singing with him because it's not needed. (laughs) Get rid of it. I think their voices blend great in that chorus. Oh, Honestly, Halsey, MVP of the album. Really? MVP of the album. Yeah, it was my favorite part. Because first off, yes, I know, I called the MVP of the album the featured person, not the artist themselves. Yes, I understand. Well, no, even beyond that, I was about to say that Halsey's on the second verse, and I like Halsey a lot. I really do, 
But the second verse is maybe the worst thing I've ever heard them do. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Have you ever heard them do anything else? Hold on. No, no. No. I have no familiarity with this person at all. Know nothing about them. Didn't even know they were on this song because I was too busy taking notes. I didn't look at the title of the song to see that it said featuring Halsey. And so we hit verse two and all of a sudden they come in and start singing. And I'm like, what is going on? This is great. I like this. <laughs> like, it blew me away. Halsey was great. Again, voices blend really well. Chorus, pre-chorus with MGK and Halsey, fantastic. But the verse just felt really frantic for their usual style. Oh, yeah. I really liked how fast-paced and frantic it sounded. I want to call this my favorite, but uh, the, the top three are actually kind of all close, so I'm not going to do that. I didn't dislike it. I just like Halsey's normal vibe better. Well, I have zero experience with that, so maybe I'll agree with you in the future. But for now, I disagree. That's fair. Lyrically, though, lyrically, I did think their verse was pretty good. And then their pre-chorus changes, too. Mm-hmm. Machine Gun Kelly, when he does the pre-chorus by himself, he says, I left before you woke up. I don't feel right seeing you sober. And then when Halsey does their part, they go, you left before I woke up. Why don't I ever see you sober? Uh huh. You get these two different perspectives on the same one night stand. Yes, it's so good. I love it when a duet song takes two different perspectives for each of the singers and kind of bleeds them together. Mashes them up. Just like this song does. It's so good. I love it when songs do that. So Forget Me Too is a solid song. Oh, all I know is that Forget Me Too was all right. Which brings us into track six, All I Know. Again, all the songs that feature people really stood out as good ones for me. I don't know why. I just think, especially the way this album is produced, Machine Gun Kelly sounds better when there's people with him, not when he's by himself. I wonder if that's any kind of byproduct of his time as a rapper, because rap obviously features other people all the time. I don't know, maybe it's a holdover from that. Hard to say. Also, one reason I really like this song, it's the first song to really feature a section where they strip away the problem. Processing. When he starts this song off with the all I know is I don't know nothing, that digital sound is gone. That's just him. And it sounds good. It's catchy. I like it. He's actually singing. He sounds good while singing. It's true. Do the whole album that way. And it would have been so much better. Mm. People speculate that the chorus, that bit that you just talked about, all I know is that I don't know nothing, is taken from a song called Knowledge by Operation Ivy. They speculate? They don't know if it was taken from that? (laughs) No, they don't know. Machine Gun Kelly's never commented on it. But I looked up that song and I listened to it. And I think it's reasonable to assume that he was at least influenced by it. They're similar enough that I wouldn't be surprised at all. Verse 1 is a little wild, isn't it? He says, no license, I'm still riding. Crashed into a tree and kept driving. That's the thing that really happened, by the way. That's what inspired this song, was he got into an accident on the way to the studio. I figured. Based on the next line, it says, my label hates that I'm like this. Made me think it was a real event he's describing. Yep, very much. Trippy Red, by the way, the guy that's featured on this song, is also an Ohioan. Oh, are they one of the hip-hop, hippie, hippin' hop, hipping, hopping... Uh, Are you okay? <laughs> hip hip hopping, hipping, hip hop, hip hopping, hopping. Is he one of the hipping and hopping artists of Ohio who keeps snubbing me out of the awards? He's, yeah, probably. I'm sure he's more of an Ohio hip hop icon than you are right now. For now. For now. Machine Gun Kelly, he's on the downfall. I'm on the upfall. You're going to pass him on the uprise. Uh, no, the upfall. Everything's a fall. Are you selling tickets to your upfall? <laughs> yeah, they come with a free ticket to my updog. you really pushing that one tonight, aren't you? I'm just really trying to get you with it. One of these times you're going to fall for it. I feel it. Okay. <laughs> in the outro, they sing, Bloody teeth in my mouth when I smiled last night, broke his jaw, now he can't say nothing. I think this last line is a soft allusion to Jawbreaker, which comes later on the record. Well, you know, if he did break his jaw and go to jail, he would probably be pretty lonely. Let's talk about track seven, Lonely. Starts with a great guitar riff. I actually really, really like the guitar riff at the start of this. Yeah. And I know we've joked about how surface level some of these lyrics seem, but like for real here, Lonely is a high point for me because it's actually got some depth and a real emotional punch behind it. This one, Certified Poetry. Certified Poetry and Certified Connor Top 3. Ooh, double certified. I like ballads. I'm the ballad guy. This song's a ballad and it's got so much emotional like punch behind it as he's singing. There's a ton of emotion behind it. It's a song about his dad and his aunt who had recently passed away and he kind of used this song and the writing recording process 
to help him cope with that loss. Mm -hmm. The first verse is all about his relationships with him. He was living with his dad in his aunt's basement when he first started writing songs as a kid. After his aunt passed, he said about her, none of the kids at school understood me, so I was always alone down there writing, and his aunt was the only one who saw me for what I was going to become, he said. He had a very close relationship with her. Mm -hmm. And on the chorus, he sings, Lonely, lonely, even when the room is full. I'd trade it, trade it. I would trade it all for you. That's really all there is to it. It's simple, but effective. In the second verse, he describes his first time being arrested, which, by the way, happened when he was 14 years old. Yeah, I think the line, she cried when she picked me up. I don't know why that one just really got me. This concept, because earlier in the song, he talks about how, you know, his mom had left. And then, you know, so it's almost like his aunt had kind of taken over the the motherly role in his life at a young age. Yeah, well, I think it's not only so much illustrating that she's a mother figure to him, but to see her crying like that shows him that he is a son figure to her. Yeah, a son figure. Okay, that works too. (laughs) Dad is still a dad figure, though. He is a self-proclaimed crappy son, and he says that he understands why it took he and his dad 25 years to get along. That's a quote. Interesting. In verse 3, he talks specifically about his dad. You know, the first part of the song kind of was more about his aunt. In verse 3, he says, I cried the last time I saw you. I wish you had more time left. The last time I heard you, they held the phone. You took your last breath. It's just really vivid and sad. Like, you feel like you're in the moment. You know what I mean? Reliving it with him. And the song ends with a recording as his father describes Colson's birth and the struggles with the umbilical cord and heart problems. Like, he kind of lays out several complications that went along with it. And it's such a deeply personal thing to include on this record. I'm honestly surprised he decided to do it. But I found a quote where he says, I was encouraged by someone to ask about my life, you know, when his dad was kind of on the decline. Uh, He said, I was encouraged by someone to ask about my life knowing that this could be the last time I was able to find out certain truths. I think I ultimately chose to put it on the album because it can maybe help people understand my psyche a little more. So there you have it. It is super personal, but it's very effective and moving. So, you know, I usually only listen to the album one time. Yeah. I listened to this song a second time because I came across a article when I was researching for Factor Spin and they started talking about his performance of this song on SNL. The like all the lighting and special effects stuff that he, they had set up malfunctioned, so none of it would work. So it ended up being just him with a guitar and a microphone on stage. Oh, that's got to be so powerful. Yeah, and he said he had been looking for a cathartic moment since his dad passed. And he said when he hit the first chorus of that song and that performance, that he and the audience could feel that raw energy happening and the catharticism came in that moment on stage. Fantastic. I'm going to have to find that when we're done. Ooh. So Lonely kind of comes to a close on this really personal, really quiet note with this last recording of his dad. And then we tear into World War III. (laughs) This track portrays a fight with a significant other, one so crazy and out of hand that he calls it World War III. Yeah. (laughs) One of my favorite lines from this song, another certified poetry moment, make it look good while you're lying to me, he sings in the chorus. It's a good one. It is, I know. That's how how, uh, the mixtaper feels during Factor Spin. He tries to make all of his lies look good. He tries to make it look good while he's lying to me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, good for him, yeah. I thought the line you were going to say with certified poetry was, because I'm not your (laughs) No, is that one certified buffoonery? (laughs) It's a line, that's for certain. I th- I would lean more towards giving that the stamp of buffoonery than, than certified poetry. It's a short song, and honestly... It's not even a minute. Yeah, I honestly think World War Three is a forgettable song. It is one of my least favorites. I did not. I was just like, okay, next. There's not much to it. It is a quick little romp through this destructive argument. And I think it's really interesting that he chooses to illustrate this fight in that way. But at the end of the day, I'm less than even lukewarm about it i just don't think it does much for the album i agree (laughs) yeah the next track is the kevin and barracuda interlude (laughs) where machine gun kelly and pete davidson try and set up an intro for the next track i love it Uh, i loved it it was cracking me up the whole time i was listening to it what i had no idea machine gun kelly and pete davidson were good friends Yeah, apparently. Both the interludes are very weird. I think this is the weird one. I totally can get behind Banyan Tree. This one, not as much. It's still got a bit of a weird vibe, but this one is just... I I mean, they have the little ring that's fake phone ringing at the beginning. (laughs) And then they go, yo, 
Yo. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I feel like part of it's the whiplash, right? Because you come off of Lonely, which is this very powerful moving song, into the hurricane that is World War Three. Into yo. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, yeah, jarring, to say the least. Before we get started, can you give me some beep boops? <laughs> Track number 10 is Concert for Aliens, which is the whole reason they just had this big alien-themed interlude to try and come up with an introduction for it. And interlude aside, I do love the big way that this one opens. It's that classic pop-punk feel in a way that we just don't really see it in other places. Like, it's times like this that I can really, really hear Travis Baker's Blink-182 fingerprints. This is where I noticed it the most. I agree. This song seemed to me like an assertion that Machine Gun Kelly really doesn't fit, nor does he want to fit in with the rest of the world. This whole chorus is SOS, I'm calling, I'm falling. Like he's trying to get the attention of these aliens that could take him somewhere where he'd feel more normal. It's it's an interesting concept. This is a classic example of where repeating things back to back works. Really? I like the chorus where he goes, SOS, I'm, and I'm calling, and he echoes with the I'm calling, and then he says, SOS, I'm calling out, and then he goes, I'm falling, I'm falling now. It's the, the echoes in the second parts of the lines are different all four times, even though they're kind of an echo of one another. They're different enough that the SOS repeat is okay, because the SOS is like the punctuation. It's like the exclamation, right? Yeah. You're exclaiming SOS, and then you got the I'm calling or I'm falling going on to wrap it up in a way that feels different each time. That's a good point. I do like the repetition on this a lot. It also is just catchy. Yeah, it is. In verse two, he sings about how, and I quote, High school sucked and the food was awful, and he dyed his hair, pierced his nostril. Again, what do you think? Certified buffoon expert, high school sucked and the food was awful. Poetry? I mean, I went through high school. I would say a lot of it sucked and the food wasn't great, except for cheese stick day. Okay, yeah, 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 but we're not judging based on how accurate it is. We're judging based on how poetic. Listen, I don't know about the lyrics, but the school certified buffoonery. The school is, that's right, man. School sucks, <laughs> food's awful, certified buffoon. I like the line, I know you wanted me to go to law school. It really fits with the whole, you know, like you said, he doesn't want to fit in. I think it's pretty obvious at this point, after Kevin and Barracuda interlude, that he doesn't fit in with what people would consider, you know, the norm. But I think that line specifically is what tells you he doesn't want to. That's a great point. Yeah, I think that really is indicative of the shift. And he talks about too in the bridge is another place where I saw it. I'm in too deep. I feel too much. I'm insecure. I F things up. Like that's just not the way he's hardwired and he's okay with it. I like how this song ends. They they sing through the whole song. It's a pretty good song. And then he just exclaims a curse word and goes, I said the wrong lyric. Oh, keep that. <laughs> I said the wrong lyric. Yeah. It's the funny way to end the song. Yep. Uh, fun trivia, though. This was the last song they recorded for the record, and apparently they finished it just two weeks before the album dropped. So on that kind of a deadline, I definitely understand. They probably spent months doing the Kevin and Barracuda interview. <laughs> yeah, they worked on that one for actually like eight weeks. Just constantly, day after day, perfecting <laughs> it. But that's Concert for Aliens. The next song is another, I think, really popular one. And another feature. This next song is My Ex's Best Friend, featuring Black Bear. Yep. It's pretty much, just like it sounds, a song about wanting to get involved with the best friend of his ex. Could you guess that from the title? What? I had no idea. Yeah, I know. I know. We've had some deceptive titles in the past, but this one seems to be another straight shooter. In the first verse, he meets the best friend of his ex. You know, you know my ex, and that makes everything seem complicated. He even says he's willing to ignore the text that she's sending to her own ex just to try and keep things simple between the two of them. I want to put it in my top three. See, that's crazy. I did enjoy this song a lot, but this song marks the start of the section of the album that just broke me. <laughs> I was like, ugh. Really? Yeah, a little bit, because what is this song actually about, okay? We start off with Machine Gun Kelly's character. That's fine. He has an ex. He's trying to get with her best friend, but now she's got an ex that she's texting and that, you know, he's pretending that he can't see, and then Black Bear sings the second verse, and to me, it sounds like he's the guy that this new girl was texting in the first part of the song because he says he's getting texts from his own ex but not replying. Like, he, the song starts and ends with him saying it all feels complicated, and yeah, it does. Because he, he never really explains much of what's going on in this song. There's I think, okay, I think what's happening, I think we're having a Billy Joel moment here. 
if we refer all the way back to episode one, Billy Joel, The Stranger, where you complained that Billy Joel would just kind of call out this problem that everybody had and didn't really give any solutions or commentary on it. He just kind of said, yeah, this happens and everybody does it. And you didn't like that. Okay. That's what I think is kind of happening here. Oh no, no, this is different. He's showing by saying that everybody's texting their exes. He's saying that like everybody's doing it. I mean, I, I guess, but he sets it up too much. Like it's telling some kind of story. Like there's too much going on. I feel like it's one of those things where it makes sense in machine gun Kelly's head, but it just doesn't translate well to us as listeners. Oh no, I liked it. I kind of, I thought I got it. Machine gun Kelly is trying Trying to get with his ex's best friend, but maybe his friend is the current ex of the girl he's trying to date. It's a very convoluted, like, not even a love triangle. You know what? This is a love rhombus, and it just doesn't make a lot of sense. It, it just felt like we've been thrown in the deep end of the situation, and we just have to figure out how to swim really quickly before the song's over in, like, two minutes. I like the song. It's catchy. But this is where I really started to go crazy trying to break down these songs. Mm -hmm. Because the next song is Jawbreaker. It's another song that's really simple at its core. The chorus is super short. This one is down there with World War III where I'm just like, all right, next. Okay, I used to actually really like Jawbreaker until I started listening to the lyrics and stuff. And then I was like, what? What? I did not like this song really at all. <laughs> the chorus goes, Jawbreaker, she tastes like candy. Star Chaser, and she's not landing. LAX is in Miami. Like his ex from LA is in Miami, you know. I don't have much to say about this song, but I just can't really even tell if it's about a current girlfriend who tastes like candy and chases stars, or if it's a song about an ex that's gone and in Miami who was really hard to figure out and he still can't let her leave. No, you see, I love what he was... I just don't like the execution of the song. Let's make that clear. I don't care for the song itself. I actually really enjoy the, the story he tried to tell and how he tried to tell it. Yet again, I'm the total opposite of you where I don't care a single bit about the story. The story is not doing it for me. But I really like the melody, and the song seems really catchy. Yeah. Either way, I think what we're finding out is if you crack open this song and take a good hard look, there's nothing inside. Boo. Thank you. Nothing inside is track 13. And it's just another really forgettable track. Kind of the likes of World War Three for me. This is the one with a feature that I just didn't care for. The song was forgettable. Yeah, it features Ian Dior. I have not recognized any of the features on this, by the way. You didn't know Black Bear and Halsey. Oh, it kills me. That's why we're doing this podcast. <laughs> Deep breath. You'll learn. He can, I can teach him. I can fix him. <laughs> this song is about Machine Gun Kelly describing the skeletons in his closet and how he's kind of hollowed out his personality to be in a relationship with this person. He sings in the chorus, I did this all for you. Look what I've turned into. She looked dead into my eyes and saw nothing inside. That's the chorus. Verse one, I do really like the bit that goes, she's a girl from a small town, but we're in a big city and she's in my passenger seat right now because we live in a small world. I told her it's all yours. Again, another very simple sentiment and he doesn't mince words when he's conveying it. After nothing inside, we come to the second and final interlude, Banyan Tree. And our final appearance of Megan Fox for the album. That's correct. She found a way into this album twice on both the interludes. She did. Megan Fox finds a way. She's got an inner gold bloom. Her inner gold bloom came through on this album. Banyan Tree is pretty much a conversation between Machine Gun Kelly and Megan Fox. They talk about their relationship and his bad habits, and how they each got tattoos of each other's name, or initials at least. So Machine Gun Kelly is the one with Megan Fox's initials, and Megan Fox has a tattoo right on her collarbone. Has his nickname, right? Yeah, her collarbone says El Pistolero, mm -hmm. which is the gunner in Spanish. Very interesting. The other thing that I learned and is worth mentioning about this is the banyan tree is named after a fig that starts its life as almost like a parasite plant because it grows in the crevices of another tree. I knew that. It's a weird thing that I knew, but I actually knew that. How did you know that? I read about it on one of my late night deep dives into random topics. On one of my late night fig researching excursions, I learned about <laughs> the banyan tree. I think that that image of a tree growing in the crevices of another tree is just a really interesting metaphor for the dynamic of their relationship and kind of the nurturing nature of it. Kelly said that he hopes this interlude encourages people to look beyond the obvious about him and his life. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I honestly like this interlude. I think it's a good way to separate play this when I'm gone from the rest of the album. You know, he takes a moment and kind of separates it. His use of raw audio files, you know, he uses it here on the Kevin and Barracuda interlude in the Lonely when he plays the bit. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think that's a really, from a production standpoint, again, a really cool thing to have done throughout the album is to include those. It really, as he said to Megan on their first date, lets you take a look at his life for a moment. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, if we're promised tickets to his downfall, we're really getting a good look inside his actual life with those little snippets of real audio. And one of the lines that he sings at the end of this interlude is, if the world was coming to an end, I don't want to close my eyes without feeling like I lived. And that just is... Quite a thought, you know? I think that's an attitude that he expresses throughout this entire album. Mm -hmm. Now, I have a feeling this album closer is going to be another one of your favorites. If I recall, you've only added two to your top three, right? How's Play This When I'm Gone sound? Top three. Uh Uh-huh. That's what I thought. It's another one like Lonely that packs a huge emotional punch. He wrote this song for his 11-year-old daughter, Casey. And in the first verse, he explains the nature of the song to his daughter. I'm writing this just so I can say I love you. And then he says, everything about me was you. Like, that's amazing. Like, that's so heartfelt. Yeah. It's really evident, the love that he has for his daughter on this track. Mm -hmm. Here's a fun fact I almost used for Factor Spin. He and his daughter are going to be starring in a movie together. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. He gets pretty raw on the pre-chorus in describing what he's been struggling with to his daughter. I'm 29. My anxiety's eating me alive. I'm fighting with myself and my sobriety every night. And last time, I couldn't barely open my eyes. I apologize. Ooh. Yeah. And again, it's just him singing raw about slash to his daughter. It's really lovely. That's true, it is. The chorus is simple and almost, I guess, halfway more uplifting. He says, I'm not going to lie and tell you it's all right. You're going to cry, but baby, that's all right. Kind of reaffirming that it's okay to be sad, but at the same time, I'm not going to pretend that everything is hunky-dory. I'm pretty sure hunky-dory is the exact phrasing Machine Gun Kelly had in mind when he wrote that lyric. Certified hunky-dory. Certified (laughs) hunky-dory. He's a big family person. Uh, I think that that's pretty obvious from the song Lonely, where he talks about how he kind of regrets not having been able to get along with his dad sooner and missing his aunt and stuff like that. He said in several interviews that, you know, he tries to make his daughter his number one priority at all times. That's just something that's good to highlight, especially when you got a guy who... Yeah, he gets into a lot of things. Yeah, he just thinks about getting arrested and about how his life's in shambles, and he just seems like he's all over the place. It's just good to note that he does put his daughter first maybe he's not as buffoony as people think he is no and honestly i think this whole album and this whole shift from rap to pop punk really embodies kind of the changes he's trying to make in his own life for his daughter and for his relationships and for himself Mm -hmm. you know trying to do better get clean sober up just improve as a person i think that really shows in the context of these songs like i know he writes about things that are his vices and things that he does wrong or some things that are like his shortcomings as he said in the one song he has to go through crap in order to write and like he writes from a dark place it seems like yeah and he's kind of acknowledging the problems here you know he's not shying away from the issues he's really trying to tackle them head on in his music but i think we've covered all the songs with that yes we have and that means it's time for the final spin so you've talked about your top three favorite songs you're not gonna pick a favorite It's definitely, I mean, it's between Lonely and Forget Me Too, and they're just such different songs. I think I'm going to pinpoint my favorite in this one as Lonely, because it just feels like it packs the biggest emotional punch. A hefty emotional punch. Let's talk about score. Oh? I want to do things a little differently this time. I'm going to spew some of my rationale for my scores at you all at once in a block, and then just give you all my scores at the end. Let's do it. Mostly on music here. I think this album really explores the full range of pop punk. You know what I mean? Machine Gun Kelly really gets into the corners here and kind of takes the genre to its breadth. Everything that pop punk is and has been, he tries to throw a little bit of it in here on this record. And I can respect that and I appreciate it. Yeah. But you can tell, though, that this man grew up as a rapper at heart because it's kind of got that hip hop DNA that makes for an interesting experiment, but I'm not so sure that it makes for a great pop punk classic. It seemed to me, too, like the lyrics are either so simple that they're not worth mentioning or so complicated that we need Machine Gun Kelly himself to come in here and explain what the heck's going on. That's an open invitation, Machine Gun Kelly, anytime you'd like to be on. Machine Gun Kelly, please come and correct us. But no, think of lines like, high school sucked, the food was awful. Some of these lines that would earn the stamp of buffoonery versus whatever kind of inexplicable situations were going on with Jawbreaker and my ex's best friend, like all this very complicated stuff that's got so many moving pieces you really can't follow it in two minutes. I feel like from what I've heard with this album, the music and the lyrics are sometimes each good at different points 
moments, but I felt like it was very rare that they were both good at once. There were moments, of course, where they both lined up, but for the most part, I felt like it was either the lyrics are good or the music is good, and I didn't feel like we got both. We talked about how every song on a record like Golden Hour or Dark Side was made better by being in the context of an album. I think Tickets to My Downfall is almost the opposite. When you take these in as a collective work, there's just too much stuff that I really don't think I care about enough. So, with all that in mind, my score for music is a 66. 66, whoa! Those are some low numbers compared to normal. Yeah, lyrics, giving it a 61. I'd agree with the lyrics being lower than music. Yes. Production, I do think there's a lot to be said about production on the album. I don't know, the autotune was heavy at times, sure. But Travis Baker does have a bit of a golden touch. I don't know about that. Don't get me wrong, like I like Blink-182, I like pop-punk, and I like a lot of these songs on this album. But I think production's gonna get a 75, because there were just too many moments. Sometimes the drums were really overproduced, I don't even think we talked about that. The vocals, some of these times they tried to make him sing his own backup. It just wasn't always a heck yes from me. So for overall vibe, then, all of that taken into account, everything this album is and aspires to be, given overall vibe of 70, you know, uh, it's a a listenable and re-listenable album. It's no masterpiece. It's okay. I'm shipping those numbers off to the math department. The math department is telling me it's a 67.2 for Tickets to My Downfall. That's real low compared to normal. It is. Well, okay, so I feel like also I should add a little asterisk here and kind of help you guys calibrate my rankings. When I give these albums a score, I feel like it's almost more of like the way you would get graded on a school project or something. Pretty much, if you get a 66 or below, it's like an F, like this is objectively bad. If you're down below a 50, Like, did you even try? And that's why a lot of the stuff we've seen has kind of ended up in and around the 80s, because everything, I think, sometimes gets a solid B. Gotcha. So that's kind of where I'm at with my numbers and why this one's getting a 67. What do you have to say about Tickets to My Downfall? Overall, I enjoyed this album. You listen to so much music. Something like this that's ranking down the 60s for you is like, you're really ripping on it, even though you're saying a lot of positive things. For it to rank in the 60s, you have to be really disappointed with it. Yeah, but to be fair, I feel like I should clarify that my rankings are not really an indication of how much I enjoy an album. For the most part. I think it's about how objectively good it is. But I do enjoy this album a lot, which is why we're talking about it. (laughs) Sure, sure. Well, my score is based almost completely off of enjoyment, so... (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, yeah. For me, I'm giving this one seven certified buffoons out of ten for me. (laughs) Yeah, okay, that's a fair ranking, honestly. I think there are probably seven moments of certified buffoonery on this album. We're definitely a couple of certified buffoons. Oh, 100%. But that's okay, because that's what we do best. We're really playing to our strengths. Okay, seven's not bad. I mean, you're at a 67, so it's like, we're actually fairly close. Yeah, this is nice to have an album where we've lined up again. But again, for completely different reasons. Like, I feel like several times we disagree drastically about how we felt about something, but yet, you know, it all kind of worked itself out in the wash, and here we are. So weird that that happens, isn't it? So our final scores, just as a reminder, we got a 67.2 on my end, and... A nice juicy seven from Connor. I'm excited for next week. Do we want to tease what we're doing? Big episode 10, double digits. Yeah, we should talk about next week. For our 10th episode birthday, we're doing an album that's just being released today. Like the day that this podcast that you're listening to is coming out. The album that we're going to talk about next week is being released. So we're going to throw together a really quick episode on it this week. And then hit you with it next week and it'll be over a brand new album that at the time we're recording this, nobody's ever heard. I think that's a fun way to spice things up on our 10th birthday. So keep an eye out for that coming next week in the same bat time, same bat channel. <laughs> That's going to be next week. Stay tuned. You should check out our socials at Spin it Pod on Twitter, at Spin it Pod Official on Instagram. Our website, www.spinitpod.com for all the relevant information. Check it out. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. Keep spinning. Happy birthday. Keep spinning, up dog. Up dog. What's up, dog? How much? What's up with you? Got him. Got him. We got him, boys. <laughs>